Anyone see why we call it Nairuz? Anyone read it? It's really very informative. It's a great post. Um, so in Coptic, the word for the rivers is ni aru'u. And that's where we get Nairuz from, ni aru'u. Um, and so this would be the time where the, the rivers would flood. And our, our whole calendar is established on four seasons that have to do with agriculture, right? So uh, the flooding of the waters, and then there's going to be a time for seeds and planting and uh, harvesting and, and this sort of thing. So the very beginning uh, of the year is when the river floods. Uh, and that would be the River Nile, obviously, in Egypt. And so uh, because it was a very agricultural uh, society, that's how it is that they charted things out. Um, when, the, when the church, uh, eventually towards the end of the, the third century, when they got into uh, a particularly bad time of persecution, um, and that was really in the beginning of the fourth century, they backdated the calendar and they started it right at the, the time where uh, one of the worst persecutions had happened for, for Christians, which was under Emperor Diocletian. Uh, and so the feast time that we're in right now is basically the feast of the martyrs as a whole. And uh, our church is a church for martyrs. We were actually called the Church of the Martyrs. It's a moniker that goes back quite some time, actually. And you can see that there's so many things that are in our church that, um, that will point to that. So uh, as we all learned in Sunday school at some point, you know, even the carpet that we have here is red because it's the blood of the martyrs, right? And if you, if you take a look around, uh, many of these icons are exhibiting uh, images of martyrs and if you pay attention in the church uh, in, in the liturgy itself in the commemoration of the saints the highest rank of saint that we have is the martyr uh, and usually when when we speak about martyrs especially at this time of the year there will be a lot of saint stories right lots of stories about um, the ways that that these uh, martyrs lived their lives and how they ended up uh, ending their physical life here uh, and so we're, we're very well aware of many of these saints. Um, but uh, it's, it's not as common for us to actually speak about the theology as to why it is that a martyr is considered to be the highest rank um, of the saints. I think that one of the things that we end up thinking is that uh, anyone that's very dedicated to a cause or dedicated to a religion or anything like that, especially these days. Uh, and it doesn't even have to be a religion. You could be dedicated to your country. And if you die for your country, they'll call you a martyr. If you die for your, your faith, uh, and you could see this in, in not just in Christianity, in, in anything, right? And they'll call themselves martyrs. And so I think that many of us probably just think that the reason why we're calling them martyrs is because they are the most dedicated, and this is our version of martyrdom. Uh, as opposed to whatever other martyrdom there, there might be outside of the, of the Christian church. Um, but it doesn't give us a, a really good grasp of what martyrdom is and what it means um, and where the word came from uh, initially. Does anyone know what martyr means? It's a, it's a Greek word, martyros. Anyone know what it means? It's actually not from, from a Christian standpoint at all. It means witness, right? So in a court of law, uh, that's where they would use it. If you're going to bring someone to testify, that would be the, the witness that you would call um, so that they could give their, their testimony. Now, what's interesting as well is that oftentimes now when we think of 
testimony in a religious context. Uh, there's usually um, some idea of a, a Protestant denomination or someone that's coming so that they could give their testimony as to how it is that they came into the faith or how they, uh, they found Christ in, in their lives. That's not the kind of testimony that we're describing here, right? Again, from a very secular standpoint, uh, a martyr is someone that's giving a witness. So what are they witnessing to? Is it just the fact that they really believe in this and so then we honor them because they really believed and then there are other people that uh, if you're gonna use that kind of a spectrum where they're the ones that really believe, maybe there are other people that don't believe as much and so we don't honor them as, as highly as them. Um, that's not how, how we think about it, right? We're not, we're not grading it on degree of belief. So what is it that we're, we're talking about here? So let's, let's take a look and see what we have here about, about martyrdom. Uh, the first thing that we, that we have to know is that the first Christian martyr is outlined for us uh, in the Bible. It's in the book of Revelation. It's right in the beginning. It's not usually translated this way. Um, but you'll see Revelation 1.5, the title that's given to Jesus Christ right from the beginning of the book is Jesus Christ, the faithful martyr, the firstborn of the dead. And when you see the translation, usually it says the faithful witness, right? The faithful witness. Uh, I think, again, because we read things in translation, we don't usually see how these words are connected to one another. Um, but it's important for us to be able to see this. Now, what is he a martyr for? What is he witnessing to, right? Is he a martyr for himself? That would, I think, be a little bit odd. Right? Many of these people, again, if we're, if we're thinking about it as someone dying for their belief, dying for something, uh, then we would say uh, that they're dying for Christ. But is Christ dying for Christ for him to be called the faithful martyr? Let's see what this means. Um, our first uh, account that we have at length of a theological view of what martyrdom is comes from the second century. Now, there were martyrs that were coming before this and accounts that were before this as well. Uh, we have martyrdom that, of course, stretches back right to the beginning, right, in the, in the first century. Um, you could see that persecutions were happening uh, in the book of Acts. Saul is persecuting the church. Um, and then you start seeing that, that the empire starts picking up on this. Now, in the beginning, uh, when, when we have Christianity, it's not the case that, uh, you know, Christ uh, ascends into the heavens and then we have uh, the Feast of Pentecost and then suddenly we have the Christian church as its own independent entity as recognized by everybody else so everyone would be able to look and say these are the Christian people. Uh, Christianity was very much still uh, considered to be at that time uh, another Jewish sect, right? It's another part of, of Judaism. For us, we would see it as the fulfillment of Judaism. Uh, and so it was w well tolerated for some time. Uh, and then, you know, it started picking up some, some uh, steam in terms of being able to be criticized. And then right around the year 50, uh, there was this issue in Jerusalem where they started seeing that the Jews... Uh, really started to have significant issues with the Christians. They said, no, you're really not like us. Um, and it got to be so loud and there was such a disruption that was there that the empire came in and said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to ask or we're going to force uh, the Christians to leave from, 
from this area and the Jews to leave from this area and then they end up returning uh, shortly thereafter, after a couple of years. But that's the first time that we actually see from an empire standpoint, from, from people that are outside of the religion, that there's something specific towards Christianity that they are pointing to as saying, you are your own, uh, you're your own group. And then a couple of decades after that, the, the temple is destroyed for the Jews. And within about uh, 15 years after that, uh, it's alleged that that's when, even from the Jewish standpoint, they really cut ties and they say, you guys are not part of us. Uh, and then about 10 years after that, that's really when the empire starts coming in and then we have some, some issues. So that's towards the year 90, uh, thereabouts. Uh, where you start seeing that the Christians are very actively being persecuted. And then that just goes for quite some time. Now, during that time, you'll still get accounts of people that are enduring martyrdom. So one of the, the famous ones that we have, for example, is St. Ignatius of Antioch. Um, and so he writes letters on his way to martyrdom, uh, on his way to Rome, to the Colosseum, if you guys see on the bottom left of the screen there, that's St. Ignatius of Antioch in the Colosseum, and he's uh, going to be martyred by, by the lions. Um, and on the way there, he's writing letters to the churches so that he could strengthen them. And his understanding of what it is that he's going to go endure is very deep and very profound to the point where um, these letters were for some time considered to actually be part of the biblical canon, if you want to call it a, a canon. It was read as one of the other writings in the New Testament because it was so powerful. I would actually recommend for you guys to go read it as well, just because it didn't end up uh, in the Bible. It did, didn't mean that it wasn't uh, extremely powerful in terms of what it is that he was writing. Uh, but we have that. We have Polycarp's uh, account, uh, the account of Polycarp's martyrdom. Um, but the first time that we get uh, sort of a, a theologian that's, that's stepping back from an outward perspective, from someone that's outside, not, not the one that's enduring martyrdom, um, is this account of a saint called Blandina. And Blandina is in the second century, in the middle of the second century. Uh, and the person that is said to have written this account, even though it's anonymous, they, they think that it's St. Irenaeus of Lyon. Uh, so this is happening basically in, in modern day France. And the account is a very moving account, um, but it's very deep and it's very rich and profound. So I wanted to read a part of it so that we can get uh, an idea of what it would be uh, to witness something like this with the eyes of faith looking at what's happening here. So here's this extract that says, Blendina hung on a stake, was offered as food for the wild beasts that were led in. She, by being seen hanging in the form of a cross, by her vigorous prayer, caused great zeal in the contestants, as in their struggle, they beheld with their outward eyes through the sister, him who was crucified for them, that he might persuade those who believe in him that everyone who suffers for the glory of Christ has forever communion with the living God. The small and weak and despised woman had put on the great and invincible athlete Christ, routing the adversary in many bouts and through the struggle being crowned with the crown of incorruptibility. So he's there and he's witnessing this. And when he talks about the contestants, this is, uh, I think, common verbiage enough for us that have heard 
this kind of, uh, of a characteristic uh, uh, adjective that's being assigned to them. Um, the athletes are not the people that are just going into the Colosseum so that they could go fight, right? Uh, they're considered athletes from the Christian standpoint because they're the ones that are going to go die. Um, and they're not going to fight for their faith. They're going very willingly. And so th they're, they're the ones that are, that are considered athletes or contestants, as you can see there in that fourth line. Uh, what are they contesting for? And what is it that they see when they look at her? When they look at Blandina in this form, they don't look at her and say, oh, you know, the way that they are killing her reminds us of Christ on the cross. And so we can see why uh, she would be an image of Christ. It's not a reminder. It's that they actually see Christ in her with their eyes of faith. Again, it's, and what's actually interesting here is that the way that, that uh, Irenaeus is, is writing this, he says that they see it with their outward eyes, right? So it's not like um, they're trying to make the, the best of a very bad situation, and they're looking at this, and then they say, you know, I'd feel a lot better if we can justify this and say, uh, you know, oh, well, this is just like Christ. What they see, because they have faith, because they've been enlightened uh, by the Holy Spirit, what they see, the person that they see actually enduring this persecution and the martyrdom is Christ. Not Blandina, right? It's Christ incarnate in Blandina that they see. And that's a really deep and profound thing for us to think about because, again, it's not as though she is the messenger or the emissary or something like that and thereby a Christian who stands um, as a carrier of the message so that she can go and re be a representative of Christ. It's that Christ is seen in her. Now, the rest of the people don't see this, right? If you don't have faith, if you don't have this enlightenment, if you're, if you're not looking at it with those kinds of eyes, what you end up seeing is a poor, destitute slave girl that's in the middle of this area here, uh, and she's going to be eaten by the beasts. And uh, that's a terrible thing. Now, obviously, there, it's a spectacle, so I'm sure many people were there and cheering to see that she was going to die. Uh, but those are the eyes of blindness, right? They don't actually see, because if they were to actually see, what they would see is Christ himself there. And so it's very interesting that in the middle here, it says um, that they beheld with their outward eyes through the sister, him who was crucified for them, that he might persuade those who believe in him, that everyone who suffers for the glory of Christ has forever communion with the living God. Not that she might persuade them, Right? Not that we would be moved by seeing Blandina go through this and say, oh, that, that should give me more um, uh, courage or bravery to be able to endure whatever persecutions that I have, uh, because what a great role model she is. It's that he is the one, Christ is the one, that is making this direct appeal to them. He's the one that's teaching them, because when you see her, the person that you see is Christ. It's Christ there inside of her. I'll give you guys uh, another image here from, from uh, a biblical image. You guys know on the road to Emmaus where there's the two disciples that are walking with Christ uh, and they don't recognize that it's Christ and then he opens the scripture for them and explains things to them and their heart burns along the way and then they finally get to 
to a, a stopping point, and then he breaks bread. And once he breaks bread, then they recognize that it's him, and then he disappears, right? You might think to yourself, why would he disappear? Like, is it like a, like a magic trick, or he's uh, trying to play hard to get so that they, once they recognized him, uh, and they said, oh, this is Christ, then he's out. Um, it's because one of the things that we see in the Eucharist is that the, when, when we break bread and we partake of this bread, when they partook of that bread, he didn't disappear. He actually becomes one with them. So where is he? He is in them. So that when they would look at one another, they would be able to see Christ in one another, right? And, and that's the image that we're supposed to get when we see this, that, that pericope about the, the road to Emmaus, but also this as well, right? It's not that there's someone that is just a very good Christian or has good Christian morals or, or standards or has great mental fortitude and is able to endure this or is a fool and doesn't know what it is that they're going through at all. And so they're saying like, okay, well, you know, you've just kind of been blinded by whatever it is that you're going through and you're, you're accepting this for whatever reason um, and you're a fool for buying into religion. That's not what it is that's happening here, right? It's that the person that is standing there who's enduring this suffering who's enduring this persecution, who's enduring the martyrdom, is Christ in this person. Everyone follow along? The other thing that we should also note here is that at the time, uh, women don't have a voice from an official court of law perspective. That doesn't mean that they don't have rights uh, in, in society. They had rights, and depending on where it was that you were in the empire, like for example in Egypt, um, they could uh, own land and uh, they could have wealth and, and have uh, property that they would be able to, uh, to write off and inheritances to, to other people as well. So it's not like they were just sort of the run down here, but they didn't have a voice from, a, from a, a court standpoint, from an official court standpoint. And so to call them a martyr here is to give them a right that society would not otherwise have given them, right? They have the right to be able to witness to Christ in them because they are Christ himself in them, right? Now, that is striking. The other thing that should be striking here is that she's not a person of wealth and she's not an independent person. She's poor, she's a slave, and she's a girl. So she's bottom of the rung. And what's impressive about this is that when we see this, and we're going to see this as, as this talk goes on as well, is that Christ identifies primarily with those that are the bottom of the rung, the bottom of the barrel, right? Not the ones that the world would, would honor. The poor, the destitute, the slaves, the women, these are the ones that he's identifying with. Um, there's a very famous quote from St. Irenaeus uh, that people uh, often misuse, especially these days. I'll read you the quote and then I'll tell you how it is that they usually misuse it. It says, the glory of God is a living human being Sometimes they, they translate it by saying the glory of God is, is man fully alive. And the life of the human being is to see God. Now, they don't usually include that, that second part. They usually just say that the, the glory of God is man fully alive. And the, the usual interpretation of that uh, is that um, you should live life to its fullest because God gave us this everything that we have around us. So if you live life to, to the fullest degree, um, to the, to the greatest of potential, if you actualize the greatest potential, uh, then that means that God is fully alive in you, and, th and that's, that's the amazing thing. Uh, now, that is partly what it is that he's saying, but not the way that we're thinking about it, right? Um, 
we'll start with the second part and then we'll see what it is that, that this means. So the life of the human being is to see God. Uh, there's a verse that's in Exodus 33 that's very clear that says a human being cannot see God and live. It's a very um, fundamental and clear statement. You cannot see God and live. And yet St. Irenaeus says here that the life, the life of the human being is to see God. So can you see God and die? That seems to be the image that most of us have, right? Uh, is that if someone were to see God, then for some reason they would end up dying as though it would be some form of punishment or uh, it'd be so overwhelming or something like that. God doesn't want to show himself to anybody. And so the, the, the very fact that he shows himself, if he were to do that, then you know, whoever it was that would behold something like that, they would die. Um, I think that that's usually how it is that we read it. Uh, but we have to... Again, when we read scripture, we have to read it as a whole. We have to read it as a unit uh, where the beginning testifies to the end, and the end actually clarifies a lot of the things that are in the beginning there as well. So what is, what is being said here? Um, how does one die in this way uh, to be able to see God? We saw that uh, the ones who see Christ, who see uh, the Son of God incarnate, in someone very clearly is at the time of their martyrdom, right? So as we saw with Blandina, when she's being martyred, that's when they see Christ fully in her. And so the way that you would behold God, the way that you would be able to see God is through someone's death, which is paradoxical, right? Because the death that we imagine here, the physical death, we see as being the end or as being the most terrible thing that someone could endure. Uh, but this kind of death is actually life. And we know that Christ says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so if you are united fully with Christ, you actually partake of that life. You're fully united with him. And if you're fully united with him, then that glory of God becomes that abundance of being a living, a living human being. Let's see what it is that St. Irenaeus says at length so that we can get the context of what, what the argument is that's being laid out here. It's a bit repetitive, which is good, uh, because the way that St. Irenaeus usually writes, when he has a point to make, he'll use very long run-on sentences so that you can see that the whole thing uh, connects. Um, but he's going to restate his point over and over again here. He says, For it is testified by the Lord that as the flesh is weak, so the spirit is ready. When does Christ say that? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. When does he say that? You can cheat and see it on the icon. What's the icon on? It's the prayer at Gethsemane, right? Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. For it is testified by the Lord that the flesh is weak, so the spirit is ready. That is, the spirit is able to accomplish what it wills. If therefore... Anyone mixes the readiness of the spirit as a stimulus to the weakness of the flesh. It necessarily follows that what is strong will prevail, will prevail over what is weak. So that the weakness of the flesh will be absorbed by the strength of the spirit. And such a one will no longer be carnal, but spiritual because of the communion of the spirit. Now, one of the things I want to point out two things here. When he says carnal, it doesn't mean that you stop being fleshly like this, right? It doesn't mean that you lose your body. 
that's not the, the, the carnal image that we're supposed to have. Carnal means that you're attached to the world, right? It's a worldly thing, so that if you're taken in by the lusts of the flesh, uh, if you're seeking out after uh, money or um, lust or power or dignity or respect or any of those things that we hold in high esteem here in the world, uh, that is, that's a carnal thing, right? But if that's weak, then the person that gets to act here is the spirit. And the other thing that we should note here is that St. Irenaeus is not saying that your spirit is the one that then takes over, right? As though we are dichotomized and our spirit is the one that wants to take off here. Uh, he's saying the spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is the one that then acts. In this way, therefore, the martyrs bear witness. So he's saying the witnesses bear witness or the martyrs bear a martyrdom. Right? The martyrs bear witness and despise death, not after the weakness of the flesh, but by the readiness of the spirit. For when the weakness of the flesh is absorbed, it manifests the spirit as powerful. And again, when the spirit absorbs the weakness, it inherits the flesh for itself. And from both of these is made a living human being, living indeed because of the particip participation of the spirit and human because of the substance of the flesh. It doesn't mean that when martyrs are coming up against death, that they say, oh, death is no big deal. I don't really see that this is a, a very significant occurrence. Uh, or that they might say like, oh, well, you know, none of this actually makes a difference. Uh, so why not just end this life because this life is, is futile and unnecessary. That's not the way that the, the martyrs are going into this, right? What they are witnessing to is a very specific witness. It is to Christ himself inside of them. Um, and this witness is to become the image that we are asked to be. Let me see when this is going to pop up here. Okay, well, I'll get to that in just, just a second here so that we could see how this train of thought is really laid out in a sort of systematic way. But what you want to be able to see is that when what the martyrs are, are going up against here, when they come across this, when they have the opportunity to die, that's when it is that they can live. In death, they find life. Not common death do they find life, right? So it's not, we're not saying here that, uh, you know, through a disease or um, uh, a natural disaster or old age or something like this, then you're released from the bonds of the flesh and, and thereby find life. The image here that St. Irenaeus is laying out, and this is from his Against Heresies, uh, is very clear that the martyr, through identifying their death with Christ's death, because the, the death that he endured was this horrific death from the standards of, of the world, right? The worst death that you could possibly die is the one that he ended up enduring. When you die in a humiliating way for your faith, for Christ, that's when you are coincident with Christ. That's when he identifies fully with you and you with him. That's when you bear his image most fully. And that's really amazing because if you think back to, again, the very beginning, when God makes us, he says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, right? So when God makes man, he says, I want him to look like us. 
In Hebrews 1.3, it says that the very image of God the Father, the very image, is God the Son. He is the express image of the Father, and we are made in the image of the image. So let's track that out just a little bit, because now we're just saying image a few too many times for us to keep track. We're supposed to be the image of Christ, who is the image of the Father. When we are fully created, when we are fully man, when we are perfected the way that we were supposed to be right from the beginning, when we fulfill what it was that was called to us right in Genesis 1, is when we die a martyr's death. Which is not what we usually think of when we read Genesis 1.26, but that is the fullness of life, is to die in Christ. And this introduces us to the great paradox in Christianity. This is something that St. Paul testifies to in 2 Corinthians. I'm going to read to you what it is that he says because this lays down a lot of our understanding of martyrdom and suffering and pain in this world. Uh, And then we'll backtrack a little bit to see why it was that he was saying this. So that I should not be excessively exalted, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, an angel of the accuser, so that he might buffet me about so that I might not be excessively exalted. I just want to pause there for just a second. Uh, I don't think most of us realize this. He's excessively exalted means that he doesn't want to be puffed up or have a big, uh, a big head or a big ego or something like this. So what he's saying here twice in this one verse is that so that I didn't have a big head, I was given this thorn so that I didn't have a big head, right? It's very clear as to why it is that this thorn was given to him. It's so that it can keep him humble for a particular purpose. It's not just because God wants to keep him humble, right? Just as though humility is a great um, abstract virtue that we should all strive for. It's because of exactly what it is that he's going to say right now. As for this, three times I implored the Lord that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I shall instead most gladly boast in weaknesses, so that the power of the anointed, the power of Christ, might overshadow me. Therefore, I delight in frailties, in insults, in exigencies, in persecutions and ordeals on behalf of the anointed. For when I am weak, then I am powerful. When I am weak, then I am powerful. And this is the the, the great mystery that we have in Christianity, right? Again, And we're going to hear this over and over and over again. And and I can't tell you how many homilies and sermons I'm sure that you'd hear that the true power of God, the fullness of his um, glory is seen when it is most hidden from our physical eyes, right? When he's on his cross, that is when he's on his throne, right? That is God sitting on his throne is Christ on the cross, And that's him showing the greatest amount of glory. Again, not with unfaithful eyes would you be able to see that, right? If you're outside of the church and you see that, you mock it. But that's not what we see, especially with eyes of faith. When you see this with faithful eyes, then you would be able to see that the same thing that Christ testified to in himself, the thing that he witnesses to, the truth that he witnesses to, and he is the truth, is that in weakness is strength, is God's strength. And this is what it is that St. Paul learns. Now, he doesn't just learn this because of the thorn that's in his side. This is preceded by a chapter 
So this is 2 Corinthians. Uh, I think this is 2 Corinthians 12. The chapter that precedes this is him making an argument for why it is that he should be recognized as an apostle because there was um, uh, a big debate at the time amongst various communities as to whether or not he should be considered to be an apostle. And in that chapter, he outlines uh, something for us that when we read, and we read this kind of a list, and we hear all of the horrible things that he had to endure, whenever we hear lists in the church, or, or in anything that you're, that you're reading or listening to, we usually zone out, and then we just kind of get the general idea. Okay, he suffered. But listen to what it is that he says in terms of how it is that he suffered. Mind you, he's saying this right before this, right? Uh, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. If that's not enough, he'll detail it for us, right? Five times I have received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. I want you guys to draw into your mind, if you've ever seen the Passion of the Christ, for example, and you've seen that very bloody image of Christ going through the 39 lashes, uh, he endured that once, St. Paul endures that five times. Three times I have been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. One of the things that we should keep in mind here is that stoning doesn't stop when you die, right? Everyone takes up a stone and they start throwing it, and then when you run out of stones, then they're done and they walk away. Uh, and so if you're dead, you're dead, and if you're not, then you're in really bad shape. And he was in really bad shape, right? Once I was stoned, and then he gets up, uh, and he has to continue from there. Three times I have been shipwrecked. Imagine just going through this once, right? Like in any of these things. If I had received, for example, 39 lashes, I'd probably talk about it for the rest of my life. Uh, this is the only time that he's actually making an appeal to this so that he could show his apostleship. Three times I have been shipwrecked. A, a night and a day I have been adrift at sea. If you guys have ever been on a cruise, for example, and you go out in the middle of the night and you look at the ocean and you wonder to yourself, Maybe I'm the only one that has wondered this, but I'm sure other people have wondered this as well. What would happen if I accidentally fell off? No one would actually be able to find me. They wouldn't even know that I've fallen off of the cruise line and then just float around there in the middle of the ocean. That's what happened to him, right? Three times shipwreck, one day and one night just floating adrift in the middle of the sea. He's just floating, right? Doesn't know whether or not he has support. Doesn't know anything. He might die. Something might come and eat him. He might give out of his energy. And he's an older man when this is happening. Um, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brethren, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure upon me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Now, he's laid out all of these things that he's had to endure in his life for the sake of the gospel. 
I would say that many of us would say, well, then what's the point? Why would I endure any of those things? And I would venture to say many of us probably have those kinds of thoughts in our spiritual lives anyway, right? If this is the life of a Christian that I have to be able to, to go through and by doing good things or honorable things that the world is going to stomp on me or I'm not going to get the promotion that I want or I'm going to be mistreated by people or I'm going to have struggles uh, with, uh, with my spouse or whatever it is that it might be. If that's what it means to be a Christian and I have to be uh, humble, it's not worth it, right? Wh where's the payoff here? If the payoff is some sort of unseen, unknown thing that's going to happen after death, well, I don't know if that's going to happen because you know what? My, face, my faith isn't that strong. After he recounts all of this stuff, he tells us what the immediate payoff was. He says, 14 years ago, whether in this body or outside of the body, I don't know, I was taken up into the third heaven and I was shown things that I cannot even utter, right? So that he got to see, he was able to experience very deep theological realities, which is why he's able to write very deep and knowledgeable things about God. It's not that he just sat back and he thought as a philosopher would, okay, let's go through and logically lay out what it is that, that must be um, the truth it's that he was exposed to these things from an experiential standpoint. He was able to see Christ in his fullness as much as could be seen while, uh, while St. Paul was still alive here. And he's able to, to, to be exposed to all of these things. And he says, I know all of this stuff. I was able to see all of that, but so that I should not be excessively exalted. And then he says this, right? So he says, look, there, there was something that I was exposed to. I had this experience, this amazing thing that happened to me. And the thing that I prayed that was, would be taken away from me is a thorn in the flesh. Now, this is kind of funny because I would imagine, if I was in his situation, that the thing that I would be praying for the whole time was, I pray that I don't get whipped again. I pray that I don't get shipwrecked again. I pray that I don't get stoned again. I pray that I, don't, uh, that I have something to eat tomorrow. I pray for all of these things. The thing that he actually prays for is probably the smallest of those things, right? He just wants this thorn to be taken away from him. Uh, but this is amazing because he boasts in his weakness. And that boasting in the weakness is something that's so profoundly true for us to be able to see why it is that a martyr should have the highest boast of all. It's because the highest boast of a martyr is to be identified as Christ. And you are identified as Christ when you are shown to be the weakest of the weak, and that is in martyrdom. So, let's go through these premises here in order. Uh, they might not be in order, and they might not actually lead with one another. I uh, came up with this last night. Uh, right before I went to sleep, so it might not actually be very good, but let's, let's see what it is that, that we have here, right? Man is called to be in the image and likeness of God. Genesis 1.26. The perfect image of the Father is Christ. Hebrews 1.3. Perfect humanity is seen in Christ. The perfection of humanity is seen in Christ. He's not just a human being or the perfect human being. He is the human being that we are all supposed to strive to be, not just because he's also God, but because this is what he shows us that a human being should be, right? The perfect human being. Perfect humanity is seen in Christ. Man must be perfect. Man must be perfect to be in the image of Christ. In order for a man to be perfect, he must be like Christ in all things. Christ is life. Christ's perfection was manifested in its fullness on the cross. 
Man finds Christ as life in a death like Christ. And the martyr is the perfected image that man was created to be. This is why we hold martyrs up in that stature, right? Because they become, as far as can be, perfect human beings. And it's not that they do that by their own mental fortitude. It's not that they're doing that by sheer will. It's that they're doing this and they're able to be called perfect, perfected in the faith, because they are coincident with Christ himself. So that you can see them with eyes of faith and you see Christ in them. And that's why we have them up on the walls here. It's not so that I can look back at St. Mina in the back corner there or St. George up here and say, wow, what an amazing role model. Look at the way that he lived his life. I should also live my life the exact same way that he lived his life. When I look at St. George or I look at St. Mina or I look at any of the martyrs that are around here, what I'm supposed to be able to see is Christ instantiated in another person at another space and time, right? We have Christ in his humanity here when he was here, when he was uh, 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 alive before the crucifixion. And then when he is risen afterwards, then there's this kind of confusion. They can't really identify him all the time. Even if they're sitting with him and they're talking with him, they can't always identify, is this Christ? We just assume that it's Christ. We don't really know. Uh, because what still needs to be perfected in them is that they need to be able to have eyes full of faith, which is something that's given to them by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And that's why we call the Holy Spirit the giver of life, right? The giver of life, the bestower of life. It's not just because he gave us all life, the life that we're living right now, because many of the fathers would say that the, the life that we're living right now is not life. This isn't life, right? Everything that we're doing is just progressing towards death. And we're just... Uh, falling all, all the time. But true life, the life that he bestows on us, is Christ. And that's something that's given to us by the Spirit. And so that's how we can arrive at this. So that when we look at them, when we look at the, the icons, what we're supposed to see is Christ now risen, ascended at different times in humanity. In different times, in different, in different places, uh, under different circumstances, all the way until now, whenever you see a martyr, the person that you see is Christ in this martyr. And that is what allows for St. Paul to make, make such a statement as this, where he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In comparison, this is nothing. Not that these things in themselves are nothing, right? It's not like, like I said, it's not like they go against this kind of pain and suffering, the, the kind of things that we read about in the Synexarium, and then they say like, oh, it's no big deal, cut off my arm. Well, what's the big deal? Like, that's not real pain. Well, you know, what can you do? Uh, that is real pain. They actually go through real suffering. Being put to death as a martyr is a terrifying thing. But in comparison to the glory that's there, in comparison to being able to identify yourself with Christ, that's nothing. Now that's incredible, right? Because us, on a daily basis, in our daily lives, I would say, um, if we have the opportunity at any point for someone else to be able to identify Christ in us, it happens so, f so rarely in our lives, right? Where someone would come up and say like, oh, you must be a Christian. Uh, and it's usually for, for things that are, are, are good and noble, 
but not things like this, right? It's like, oh, you don't cuss. Uh, I take it you're a religious person. You must be Christian or something, right? Um, the times in our lives where someone would be able to say, then they look out at you and they say, ah, you are a Christian. I can see Christ in you are so few and rare. Usually, I think what we end up doing is we'll look at people that are very favored by the world and we'd say, oh, God must love them because this person has a great job and a great spouse and beautiful kids and what a nice car and all of these things. God must love them. God doesn't love me because I don't have those things. But the one that God identifies with, the one that we see Christ in, is in the weak, is in the destitute, is in the lowly, right? And so it's at those times, not when you're at your highest in the world, right? It's not when, when you have everything going for you that then everyone would be able to say like, oh yeah, look at the way that he thanks God. Look, he, look what a great Christian because he goes around and he, you know, he does whatever it is when things are going really well. It's when things are going very poorly in your life. That's when it is that you can actually show Christ in you or Christ can come through most fully in you. Because it's then that you can identify with him. So that someone would be able to see you when you're in your diseased state. When you're in your weakness. When you've lost things. When things are going really terribly. And the way that you react because of the faith that's inside of you. Because of the spirit that strengthens you. Even though your flesh is weak. Because of the spirit that strengthens you. That they would be able to look at you and say, Ah, I see Christ in this person. At the worst time. That's when it is that you can identify that. And again, that's why it is that these martyrs are held in such high esteem in our church because they are the ones that are the clearest examples throughout all of history of Christ in our midst. We can see Christ in them with our eyes of faith. Any questions? Okay, so the question is, death is often seen as a punishment for sin. Um, I think that death can be seen as a kind of punishment if we only look at it, um, if we only take particular verses of the Bible outside of the context of the rest of the Bible, right? So uh, in the Bible, it says that um, very dear to the Lord is the death of his saints, right? So that would, that would strike us as very weird. Why should death be something that should be viewed as dear to God if that's supposed to be given to us as some sort of a punishment? And it's because it's not really a punishment because it's been transformed by Christ, right? If, if it's uh, something that we impart on somebody else, so like say, for example, the state executes somebody, that's usually when it is that we'd see that this is some kind of a punishment, right? The worst punishment that you could get here uh, in America is capital punishment, right? And we call it capital punishment for, for that reason. Uh, but that's not from a theological standpoint, from a Christian standpoint, the way that death would be viewed, right? The death of a sinner is uh, often viewed as uh, not a great thing because the sinner uh, hasn't lived a repentant life. And so that would be something that would be of greater cause of concern. Now, but death in and of itself has been transformed by him who trampled on death, which is Christ himself. And that is also why it is going back to that very first uh, slide that we saw from Revelation 1.5, when we say that he is the, the faithful martyr, 
the firstborn of the dead, right? The one who has actually gone from death to life and is now calling us to life through death. So death now becomes uh, still in its, in its own element from a fleshly standpoint, a terrible thing. But from a spiritual aspect, from a theological aspect, it is the gateway for us to be able to get to life, which is also why, as we had this morning with the baptism, why it is that we baptize people and we call that death in Christ, right? That you die to yourself, that you die in yourself to Christ so that you could be raised in him. That which we affect, which we affected this morning uh, as a congregation here through the hands of the priest, uh, is, is brought to its fullness in a death like this. So death itself, uh, while it's a terrible and heinous thing from God's eyes, uh, it is not that because it's been transformed. That's a great question. So the, the, the question was, um, Martyria means witness. So is that a witness from the perspective of the, of the person that's undergoing it or for the people that are witnessing it? And I would say it's for both. It's for both. And it's not just for them that are present there at the time. If we were to read Blandina's account at greater length, it's also, it's not just for the spectators that were there, it's also for us as the readers, right? So everybody that would be exposed to it, whether for that person that's undergoing it, uh, or anybody else that would be witnessing it, they would, they would take that as a witness of Christ. And that's important for us to note because, and this is uh, imperative that we understand this, it is not the mental fortitude of this individual that we're praising, right? So it's not like we are witnessing to their strength. What we're actually witnessing to is Christ in them. If it was to their strength, then they would be like the, all the other kinds of quote-unquote martyrs that we have in the world, right? Um, a soldier that goes and sacrifices himself for his unit, for example. And you say, oh, that person was a martyr. Uh, he died for his country, died for his, his troops. Uh, then we testify towards that person as the hero. But the one that we're testifying to here, the witness, that that person witnesses to and sees within themselves and the other people see as well, is Christ in that person. Any other questions? Wonderful. Abuna, can you pray for us?